there, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and episode 16. Now, for this episode, I'm going to give the usual heads up that the content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting, and so listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behaviour at real crime scenes, and there are going to be some graphic details. And unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, the last episode, episode 15, ended with me talking about Elizabeth Paravicini, who was murdered in the early hours of Wednesday the 9th of September 1977. She had been to the cinema in the West End the night before and was attacked on her way home. She was hit over the head by someone using a hammer and her skull fractured instantly. Now that was in Isleworth in London. Well, during 1977 and 1978, Sonia, P.S.'s wife, frequently went to stay with her sister Marianne and her family in London. Now, as I said in episode 14, P.S. would take her there and collect her afterwards in his car, or sometimes he'd pick her up or drop her off in his lorry if he had work there. Again, this really begs the question, was P.S. there at this time? Did he drop her off on or around September 9th, which is when Elizabeth was attacked? This really underlines the importance of timelining a suspect. That's normally key and essential work undertaken by incredible crime analysts. And it does appear that West Yorkshire Police did timeline P.S. Not using analysts, though, because this was back in the day. However, P.S.'s timeline is still locked away in West Yorkshire Police's archive some 40 years later. Why? He's dead now, and his timeline should be thoroughly analysed against all the possible offences across the UK, including another attack in Doncaster that I want to tell you about. Just weeks before Marilyn Moore was attacked, which was on December the 14th, 1977, Another prostitute was attacked in a multi-storey car park in Doncaster. She survived, thank goodness. And she said that she had seen the man on another occasion driving away from Doncaster Lorry Park. She described a man around 35 years of age, tall, slim, with brushed back dark hair and a beard and moustache. And she also did a photo fit. Now, I've not seen the photo fit but Tim Tate and Chris Clark report that it matched closely with the other photo fits of P.S. However, this attack on the unnamed prostitute did not come to the attention of the Link series investigative team. Now, South Yorkshire Police never named her or described her injuries. I find that astounding, really, when you think that everyone was gripped by fear at this time, and yet this case wasn't flagged up or looked at, despite Barbara Ann Young's murder that I highlighted in the last episode, who was murdered in Doncaster on March the 22nd, 1976. Now, you may recall she was hit over the back of the head, and she lived at the Happy Days caravan site close to the lorry parks. And remember, P.S. knew this area well due to the routes that he took, and he was eventually arrested by South Yorkshire Police on their patch in Sheffield with a prostitute, Olivia Reavers, who was sat in his car at the time and no doubt his next victim. Equally telling is perhaps the fact that her photo fit 
didn't jump out at those investigating the case as being the same suspect that West Yorkshire police were hunting. Which reveals to me that the other photo fits done by the 19-year-old typist Anna Rajolsky, Tracy Brown and Marcella Claxton can't have been widely circulated, if at all, seeing as no police officer was making the links. Well, across my career, I've seen this time and time again. If you don't take someone seriously or you don't believe them, you're less likely to do anything proactively in terms of the investigation, like putting the photo fit out in the local and national media. And so this doesn't surprise me, sadly. Now, as I was writing and researching this episode, I was contacted by a listener who's been tuning in to Crime Analyst, and she heard me describe Barbara Ann Young's murder in Doncaster, and she believes that her aunt may have also been attacked by P.S. in Doncaster. Now, I can't tell you too much more at this time, but as more details emerge, I'll include them in the next episode. Returning back to timelining P.S., we do know that on the 26th of September 1977, P.S. and Sonia moved into their new home at Six Garden Lane, and on the same day, P.S. also bought a new car, another Ford Corsair, a red one to replace the white one. We also know that on October the 1st, 1977, P.S. drove to Manchester and he murdered Jean Jordan. You'll recall that he left the brand new £5 note in her purse. Now, you may also remember that P.S. and Sonia had their housewarming party on Sunday the 9th of October and that they had some people over. And afterwards, P.S. drove his parents back to their house in Bingley a little after midnight. Having dropped them off, he drove to Manchester to try and find the £5 note. Now, you may recall that he stabbed Jean Jordan 18 times, including on her breasts, abdomen and vagina. He stabbed her so deeply in the stomach that her stomach blew open, which made him vomit due to the smell. In the early hours of the morning, he tried to detach Jean's head from her body using a large piece of glass and a hacksaw. He thought it would confuse the police using a different weapon, which again tells me that he was consciously thinking things through. Now, this is graphic and clinical, but on a practical note, a blade of glass is not very practical as a weapon, and it's not easy to sever someone's head from their body. It's also very wet work, it's up close and personal, and it's really bloody. That's what I mean by wet work. And P.S. gave up as it proved much harder than he thought, and he left having failed to find the £5 note. I have no doubt that he was angry and frustrated, well, what he did to Jean's body reflects that, and I would imagine that stayed with him for some time as he drove back towards his new home on the morning of Monday the 10th of October. Between 9 and 9.30am on that Monday morning, 20-year-old Carol Wilkinson was walking to work at Armand's Bakery in Bradford. Carol had worked as a clerk in the wholesale department at Armand's Bakery since 1974 and she lived on the Ravenscliff Council Estate, which was less than five miles from Garden Lane and even closer to Clark's, P.S.'s workplace. On this particular Monday morning, there was a bus strike, which meant that Carol had to walk to work and she took a shortcut across a field off Woodall Road, which led to an isolated lane. 
Sadly, Carol never made it to work. Just before 10am, a man found Carol lying face down in a pool of blood. Her trousers and knickers had been pulled down and her bra had been pulled up. She had been hit over the back of the head and was lying in a pool of blood, barely conscious. It's believed that the perpetrator had been disturbed and had run off. Carol had been bludgeoned with a coping stone. Carol was rushed to hospital with multiple fractures and brain damage. She spent two days on a life support machine before doctors concluded her brain wasn't functioning and they decided to switch the machine off. Carol died shortly afterwards. The murder investigation was headed by Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson. Now, Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson had also investigated Tracy Brown's attack, Irene Richardson and Jane MacDonald, but he didn't link Carol's murder to the other attacks and murders. Now, it's been suggested that maybe it wasn't linked due to thinking that the killer was targeting prostitutes at the time and that this attack on Carol was the wrong time of day and the weapon was different. Well, remember 16-year-old Jane MacDonald was attacked and killed around 2.15am on the 26th of June 1977, so three months before Carol was murdered, Jane's attack was linked and they knew that Jane was not a prostitute And so that reasoning is flawed, in my opinion. Or perhaps it was due to the fact that a stone was used. Well, remember that P.S. used a stone in a sock when he attacked the unnamed prostitute in 1969, and we know that he battered Yvonne Pearson to death with a stone the year after Carol. I explained in episode 14 that perpetrators will adapt their MO if the opportunity presents itself and the desirability is strong, they'll improvise, and they use whatever is around them and to hand at the time. And so despite the similarities regarding the offence, and I mean that in terms of the victimology, the MO and the geography, Carol's case wasn't linked, and her case went cold for 18 months. 18 months on, Anthony Steele was in the frame for her murder. Anthony Steele was living and working on the Ravenscliff estate at the time of the attack. He confessed to following and killing Carol Wilkinson after being interviewed by detectives over two days. He was arrested and charged with Carol's murder. And despite retracting his confession, Anthony Steele was later found guilty at Leeds Crown Court and was given a life sentence. In 1985, the BBC's Rough Justice programme revealed that Anthony Steele's confession contained many inaccuracies and vital evidence that linked him to the murder scene could no longer be relied upon. It also emerged that Anthony still had learning difficulties and a low IQ. Anthony was indeed a vulnerable man, and new psychological evidence showed that he was easily led and highly suggestible. That evidence wasn't put before the jury in 1979, and in 2003 the Court of Appeal quashed Anthony's conviction as it was deemed to be unsafe. After 20 years inside prison and five years out on licence, Anthony Steele was a free man and he returned to the Ravenscliff estate. Now just think about that for a moment. That's a huge miscarriage of justice. Anthony was a vulnerable man and his confession was coerced. He spent 20 years of his life in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. 
BBC Inside staff read a confidential West Yorkshire Police document which showed that by 1979, the year that Anthony Steele was sentenced to life, the police had a much broader understanding of the fact that the killer was targeting all women and not just prostitutes. Of course, in the report, it said that he wasn't just targeting so-called innocent women. That's their terminology, not mine. And yes, I still have a visceral reaction whenever I read or hear that. And so it's clear to me that Detective Superintendent Holland and Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson's team should have considered Carol Wilkinson's case as being potentially linked and they should have investigated it thoroughly. They knew that PS had revisited Jean Jordan's body on Sunday the 9th of October to search for the brand new £5 note that he'd given Jean and then he mutilated her body further when he couldn't find it. And remember... That's what P.S. told the detectives when he made his voluntary confession. And so the West Yorkshire police knew that he travelled back home on Monday the 10th of October and they knew that geographically where Carol Wilkinson was attacked and killed was less than five miles from his home address and even closer to his workplace. Now there's more information that P.S. also did odd jobs at Ravenscliff Estate and there's some intelligence to suggest that he had had an argument with Carol Wilkinson's stepfather because apparently he had been asking Carol out and pestering her. Well, that sounds more like sexual harassment to me, and it's not the only time P.S. apparently harassed women to go out with him. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics Luxury beauty that gives back. <laughs> 
Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Okay, so I want to read to you West Yorkshire Police's statement about this. As a force, we regret the injustice of the conviction of Anthony Still, and an expression of that regret was made to Mr. Still by the then Chief Constable in 2003. A review was called of the murder of Carol Wilkinson at the time as part of a continual review process and did not establish any new suspects. West Yorkshire Police continues to review evidence from the case and from all other unidentified murders in light of the developments in forensic science and new evidence becoming available. The murder of Carol Wilkinson remains very much part of this ongoing process, and if any new evidence appears which serves to link a perpetrator with this crime, then action will be taken. Members of the public can rest assured that any offence of this nature that remains unsolved is never forgotten and continually reviewed under a well-established process. Where the case remains unsolved, there has been no justice for the Wilkinson family whose daughter Carol was brutally murdered more than 40 years ago. Neither has there been justice for Anthony Steele. After his conviction was quashed, he won an apology and a £100,000 compensation from West Yorkshire Police. However, Anthony may have won his freedom, but he died in 2007 a broken man and just 52 years old. Anthony's family wanted PS to be questioned for Carol's murder. They believed for a long time that he did it. I'm still reeling from this. It's so utterly horrific and sad and tragic and unnecessary and preventable and needn't have happened. Anthony still went to prison for 20 years for a murder that it was clear that he didn't commit. On interview, he knew none of the details, nothing about it at all. And it's clear that his confession was coerced. And it begs the question, how many more so-called cleared up murders across this time were coerced confessions? And how many other potentially linked offences were overlooked due to faulty logic and corruption? And perhaps this now gives further shade and colour and context as to why the Byford report and the Sampson report were never published. I'm truly sickened by this and I'm deeply disgusted. And my heart goes out to both Carol Wilkinson's family and Anthony Steele and his family. You see, this miscarriage of justice meant that whoever killed Carol, if it were P.S., well, he was left out there, allowed to kill and kill again, and that is unacceptable. And I know some people don't believe P.S. committed this offence, but someone did, and I also have to say that it was a Monday morning when Carol was attacked and killed, and those who say that they doubt that this was him say so because P.S. would have been in work. Well, was he? How can we be sure that he was in work? Perhaps he took the day off. Perhaps he called in sick and said he couldn't go to work. Or perhaps he did go to work and was still angry and frustrated and he killed Carol on way to another delivery. One thing is clear to me, and that's that the killer had local knowledge as Carol was attacked and killed on an isolated lane that was used as a local shortcut. 
Now, Carol's attack and murder is precisely why the detailed timeline of PS's movements is so important. It's so vital to corroborate all details with his workplace and colleagues, as well as family and others who can help piece his movements together, rather than purely speculate about his movements at the time. And sadly, there's more. Next, I want to tell you about an unnamed 18-year-old who was attacked on Tuesday the 28th of November 1977. Now, there aren't many details known about what happened in this, what I call, near-miss to murder, other than the fact that she was walking through Bradford in the evening when she sensed that she was being followed by a man. The man suddenly grabbed her hair from behind, and in the struggle she managed to throw a brick at him and he ran off. She did, however, get a good look at him, and she did report the attack to the police. She described a man, around 30 years old, slim build, straggly hair, and a mandarin moustache and goatee beard. Again, this attack wasn't flagged to the investigative team, and so another opportunity was lost. And then there's the attack of Yvonne Myslevich, a 21-year-old who was attacked from behind near her home address in Ilkley as she was crossing a footbridge at Ilkley train station on Thursday the 11th of October 1979. Yvonne was a local newspaper reporter who worked at the Ilkley Gazette at the time. She was attacked by a man who hit her using a ball-peen hammer, which resulted in a severe head injury. She survived the attack, thank goodness, because some young people appeared on the bridge over the train tracks where she was attacked, but she did have terrible head injuries. Again, despite her accurate description of P.S., police dismissed the attack as the work of a copycat criminal. A copycat? Why would there be one? What were the indicators that this wasn't P.S.? I, on the other hand, see every indicator that it was most likely P.S., so let me break it down for you. Firstly, it's important to note the victimology. Yvonne was a young, lone female, and she was attacked at night. And it's also worth noting that this was yet another interrupted attack. It was a brutal and violent attack on a lone female in a high-risk area, namely because there were other people around. In fact, then 16-year-old Brian Copping had crossed the footbridge and made eye contact with Yvonne, and they had a chat just for a couple of minutes before she was attacked. And he had seen a man loitering behind her who walked towards him who tried to hide his face. Minutes later, Yvonne was attacked. Brian was then startled by a man running behind him. He described him as black hair, a beard, wearing a khaki waist-length coat, greenish trousers and black boots. He said the man then got into a lorry and drove off. Now, Brian reported him to the police, and he also did a photo fit. Yvonne also did a photo fit when she came out of a coma. In fact, they both produced very similar photo fits. But the police dismissed the attacks as the work of a copycat, and Brian 100% believes that the man who attacked Yvonne was P.S. He was convinced after he saw the photos of P.S. when he was arrested. So why did the police dismiss it as a copycat? That's totally absurd. I can't understand, on the basis of what I know and what I've learned, why they would think this, given Brian's statement and photo fit and Yvonne's and the victimology, the MO and the geography. If West Yorkshire police detectives had taken Yvonne and Brian seriously, lives would have been saved, 
And the missed opportunities just continue to stack up. In addition to all those listed in the Byford report, there were so many more if you include all these near-miss attacks and opportunities. And I'm struggling to comprehend how they made the decisions that they did. It just makes no sense at all to me. Being a long-distance lorry driver, P.S. also made delivery runs north of the border in Scotland. He had a girlfriend there, 35-year-old Theresa Douglas, in Holytown, Lanarkshire, and he'd stay overnight with her. Oh yes, he wasn't faithful to Sonia. He was far from the family man, the image that he cosmetically managed. And I'll tell you all about that in the episode where I do the psychological autopsy and profile of P.S., P.S. had met Teresa in the Crown Bar in the village near Motherwell when he made a delivery to the local General Motors plant in 1979. Now, due to his connections in Scotland over the years, P.S. has been linked with a number of unsolved killings north of the border, including those of Carol Lannan and Elizabeth McCabe in Dundee. Elizabeth's murder in 1980 came just 11 months after the murder of Carol Lannan, whose body was found only yards from the same spot in Templeton Woods. Sixteen years after nursery nurse Elizabeth McCabe's murder, Tayside Police instructed a review of both deaths. Sixteen years seems an incredibly long amount of time before you review two murders. The murders were also included in a secret investigation into six possible PS attacks in Scotland by West Yorkshire Police's later Chief Constable Keith Hallowell. And I'll tell you more about Keith Hellowell and his secret investigation in the next episode. And in this episode, I do just want to return to the matter of Trevor Birdsall. Now, I've talked about Birdsall in previous episodes, and he also came up in the Byford Report, and Julie Bindler and I also discussed him. You'll recall that he was P.S.'s friend, and he was with him the night he attacked the unnamed prostitute, Olive Smelt, and possibly Emily Jackson. Well, on the 25th of November 1980, Birdsall wrote an anonymous letter to the police and he told them all about P.S. and that he had reason to believe he was the Yorkshire R-word. He wrote that P.S. didn't like prostitutes and was a long-distance lorry driver and that if they checked the dates, they might find something. And he gave P.S.'s full name and address and he also wrote that his work address was Clark's. His girlfriend apparently had persuaded him to write the letter. And when she knew what he wrote, she said that the police wouldn't have sufficient information to do anything with it. And so she told him to go into Bradford Police Station and report it, which is what he did on November the 26th, 1980. When he went into the police station, he told Constable Butler about P.S. And he added that he'd been in Halifax with P.S. in August 1975. And he suspected that P.S. had assaulted a woman on that occasion. Now, that would have been Olive Smelt. Allegedly, Constable Butler submitted a report on Birdsall's visit to Milgarth Incident Room. However, the letter never made its way to a senior officer, and Birdsall's visit to the police station was never followed up. And so this was yet two more missed opportunities to identify and arrest P.S. before he harmed another woman. And so to my count, that's 16-plus opportunities to arrest P.S., and I say plus because that doesn't include all the potentially linked offences the other forgotten victims. 
And so now to the final section of the Byford report, which focused on the recommendations. So I'll give you the headings of the recommendations and I'll tell you a little bit about them. The first heading was standardization of procedures in major incident rooms. Now, this was about ensuring a regular audit process of the index system, as well as ensuring that major incident rooms are staffed adequately. Number two was computerization, that computers are needed in incident rooms to deal with the flow of information. Now, Holmes was subsequently introduced, the Home Office Large and Major Inquiry System, or Holmes for short, after Sherlock Holmes. The third was leadership. One senior officer in overall command when there are multiple police services involved in a link crime series. They became known as the OIC, the officer in overall command, and then the DOIC, the deputy officer in overall command. And the OIC, the officer in overall command, should not have other responsibilities than the link crime series. The fourth recommendation was about training. Better training for senior officers to equip them with managing skills for a large-scale inquiry as well as appropriate training for staff in the Major Incident Room, the MIR. There was also a special mention of training in computers and printers when they came in for all staff in the MIR, as well as ensuring techniques for interviewing suspects in police training programmes at Detective Training School. The fifth recommendation was for an advisory team, having access to experienced detectives and forensic services when investigating a series. This was the genesis of the National Crime Faculty at Brams Hill, which has changed its name so many times now. It's now known as the College of Policing. And it was also the genesis for my unit, as I've said before, the Sexual Offences section in SO11, the Directorate of Intelligence at New Scotland Yard. The sixth recommendation related to specialist and scientific support services. And it said that in a link series, a senior scientific advisor should be appointed to liaise with a senior investigating officer due to all the different services and departments working with the police, as well as appointing a senior scene of crimes officer to coordinate crime scenes and ensure they're examined by the same staff. The seventh recommendation was headed eliminating factors. And it specified that the officer in overall command, the OIC, doesn't eliminate suspects based on criteria that's inconclusive in an attempt to reduce an excessive number of suspects. And the eighth recommendation related to police and the media. It stated the public are entitled to accurate information about serious crime from the media. The police need to understand that they have a positive duty to assist the media to report and comment responsibly and should make appropriate arrangements to this end. Well, I don't disagree with any of these recommendations. I think they sound very sensible, and I don't think anyone would take issue with them. However, these are what I call tangible and practical deliverables, the tasks, the logistical things which are far easier to implement and fix. It's much easier to focus on the logistical and practical things regarding processes that need to change, and in my experience, the police are very good at being task-focused. But it's much harder to stare the truth in the face, to critically review what you did and to say that you're sorry if there's reason to be and to be authentic and mean it and focus on cultural change and attitude change that's needed to tackle the misogyny, the institutionalised sexism and the gender bias, 
all the things that are being critically exposed in the wake of Sarah Everard's murder and have been going on for decades. And having worked with many families whose loved one has been murdered, they've all said to me that they understand that human error can happen. They're not looking to hang people out to dry. They just want answers. They just want to know what went on and what the police and others did to protect their loved one. And who wouldn't? They want acknowledgement. And then they want to understand what the police are going to do to ensure learning does truly happen so that it doesn't happen to another family. The worst thing that can happen are lies or a cover-up or lies of omission, things being airbrushed out of the narrative. And I can't help but feel like that's what happened here. Remember Lord Byford's opening remarks? He said that he didn't want to scapegoat anyone. Well, he also said that errors would be made in an inquiry of this size. Well, to me, that sets the tone. And ultimately, it seems to me his overall conclusions were that clerical errors were made and that computers would fix this problem in the future. And I want to quote what Lord Byford said about missing PS nine times in the investigation when they interviewed him. Now, remember, to my count, it's at least 14 times, and there were many other near misses to my count as well. Lord Byford said this, The broad strokes regarding this matter was that PS's details were split across four different index cards, and it was likely that someone had his details, slash the report, out at the time and had not put a card in the box under his initials to say that. Therefore, it was most likely a clerical error. Now, a clerical error makes it sound minor, but let's not forget that the Lapchu report disappeared after Detective Superintendent Holland read it, and detectives were told not to link offences, and women were dismissed. These are not minor clerical errors. They're conscious decisions and strategies, and along with misogynistic views and poor treatment of women and how they were spoken about, this resulted in PS killing and harming many more women. And let's not forget about all the photo fits that were identical and surviving victims who were dismissed and the strict and unreasonable criteria for the modus operandi in terms of linking offences. Well, here's Sir Andrew Sloan to tell you more. He was on the Byford Inquiry team and in 2014 he said this, Sir Lawrence Byford was instructed by the government to investigate what had gone wrong. He found the officers and their filing system were hopelessly overwhelmed. The Byford team asked for all 77 photofits provided by victims and witnesses to be collected together in one room. We walked in through the door and all the pictures are up on the wall and it was like a blow in the stomach almost to recognize immediately that there was looking at us from these assembled pictures. We were aware, of course, we had the immense uh, advantage of hindsight and that uh, they had been put up like that for the first time, but they also included quite a number of the assaults in which uh, suspected. But even without that knowledge, it was obvious that uh, there was a dark-haired, bearded man appearing again and again. Their conclusion? The deaths of Barbara Leach... Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill could have been prevented. 
And so you heard Sir Andrew Sloan say that Barbara Leach, Marguerite Walls and Jacqueline Hill's murders could have been prevented. Why just their murders? I find that comment staggering. This is a reductionist approach, which is offensive to me on every level, and I'm sure it will be offensive to every survivor and family member, as well as most decent human beings. You see, in my opinion, every attack and murder from mid-1975, including Wilma McCann's murder, could have potentially have been prevented. And I don't say that lightly. Having gone through this case and the Byford report with a keen analytical eye, there's still much more that I could have included in this podcast, but didn't due to it being a 40-plus episode case. So it's all very well and good, Lord Byford, stating that the Byford report should focus on learning the lessons for the future. But that's not good enough, quite frankly. To me, that's old distraction tactics. Don't look over here, look over there. And Lord Byford, of course, influenced Parliament to focus on this too. And I'm genuinely unsure about who actually read the full report in its entirety. Remember, some of it was published in 2006 following an FOIA request, but that was some 24 years later when it was published. And so the heat from the public had dissipated and the people involved had moved on and some had died. And who was going to hold them to account 24 years later? And let's not forget, 40 years on, there's still many pages missing that have been redacted and never published. And so I'm not going to be distracted or deflected to look in a different direction. And I'm going to go back to the main point. The main point being that many women were seriously harmed and murdered when they needn't have been. And there are still many women and families with no answers and victims and families who've been treated abysmally over the years. Yet there's no mention of that in the Byford report. Now, how can that be right? Lives could have been saved and the northeast of England lived in fear for such a long time while senior police officers bungled their way through an investigation when they made conscious decisions not to link other cases as well as reckless decisions to disregard expert advice and to continue on a course of overloading the major incident room despite the fact it was already overwhelmed. As I said before, and I'm going to restate it, accountability and transparency are needed to ensure there's trust and confidence. For the survivors who still live with the consequences of being attacked, the legacy, the PTSD, the brain injury, the trauma, the sleepless nights, the fear, the night sweats, and the families who grieved their loved ones and also live with a horrific legacy of being treated abysmally. And the public and the police service deserved better, in my opinion. We all deserve to see accountability. And the families and survivors especially deserved a thorough investigation. And they deserved answers. And what about all the other potential victims who continue not knowing? And so, no, the Byford report really doesn't cut it for me. And I just want you to hear what Lord Byford said at its conclusion. A serial killer only becomes a serial killer because he's cute enough to avoid detection early by the police. But I like to think that with the advent of the home system, with the new procedures and the compatibility of major incident rooms, one force with another, the chances of the serial killer getting away with it have been considerably lessened since the Ripper investigation. So I'm going to restate what he said. 
A serial killer only becomes a serial killer because he's cute enough to avoid detection early on by the police. And then I'm paraphrasing, but I like to think the chances of a serial killer getting away with it have been considerably lessened. Well, let's just think about that regarding this case. Is that a fair assessment of what went on, or is that a fair comment to make regarding P.S.? Well, on the one hand, yes, because computers are incredibly helpful to deal with the volume of information coming in with a major inquiry like this one. But a computer on its own won't believe women, it won't conduct an investigation, it won't locate the suspect, it won't make the links across offences, and it won't compare photo fits on its own. So let's not forget that P.S. could have been stopped mid-1975 if all the near misses were taken seriously and the photo fits were compared. That's not about computers. It's about doing the basics well, believing women and doing your job. And I accept that P.S. did do some things to try and avoid detection, but not much. He wasn't criminally sophisticated, nor was he forensically aware. And I also want to underline the fact that he didn't change his appearance from 1969 to 1981. He didn't change it one bit. He looked identical across the crime series and to the photo fits. And the police interviewed him and they still failed to catch him. So no, I don't accept that he was cute. And to suggest that he was is a retelling of the story that's simply not true or accurate. In fact, even P.S. said at court how surprised he was that the police didn't catch him sooner, as they had all the pieces right there in front of them. That's what he said, and I don't like to quote a serial killer, and I don't like to agree with a serial killer, but that's the truth of the matter. As I said before, the Byford report didn't focus on the real issues about how women were treated or the families, and it deflects and distracts, in my opinion. And the lack of accountability and honesty about this case is truly staggering, and I'm calling it out because it's just not good enough. Now, as I've mentioned before, there was another review, an internal review called the Sampson Report, that was written in quicker time than the Byford report at the behest of Chief Constable Ronald Gregory. And I'm going to tell you all about it in the next episode. So join me back in the intelligence cell next week to find out more. And don't forget to look on social media where you'll see all the photo fits that I've mentioned. And I'll also post the pictures that I could find of the other potentially linked victims where they're available. So until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>